Good morning, church. I love you and I appreciate you. Most of us are probably pretty familiar with the way that fairy tales usually go. There's often a beautiful princess. Sometimes she's locked away in a castle or a tower by some evil villain. Sometimes there's a spell involved. Usually she's rescued by some handsome prince charming, and sometimes he kisses her and the spell is broken, but always they live happily Ever after. Okay, so we know how fairy tales usually go. You may also be familiar with sort of a a recent version or a twist on the fairy tale genre. It was about a green ogre. I don't know if you've seen this or not, but there's a beautiful princess in this story as well. But the beautiful princess, of course, she's locked away in a tower guarded by a dragon. But instead of being rescued by a handsome prince, she's rescued by a green ogre and his kind of annoying talking donkey, okay, so maybe you've, you've seen this, and, and they, they travel away from the castle, and you kind of find out that there's a spell involved here as well, and by day, she's a beautiful princess, but at night, she also is a green ogre, and she's hoping that someday a prince charming, a handsome prince kisses her, and then she turns into a beautiful princess permanently, but... Along the way, she falls in love with the ogre, and they kiss at the, spoiler alert, they kiss at the end, and then they're both permanently ogres, and they live happily ever after as ogres. So the, the, the point I'm making here, the point I think that that story is making is that sometimes, sometimes a plot twist is what gives some stories their meaning. That story is all about the plot twists the ways that the story subverts your expectations. And so it's trying to make a point about beauty or about love or about friendship based on the plot twists, the ways that it subverts your expectations because you already know the way most stories like this tend to go. You know how the story is supposed to go and so when a story comes along and it twists it up, then you say, wait, Wait a second, what point is this story trying to make? And it's trying to make a point through the plot twists, through the ways that it subverts your expectations. Jesus does that as well. I think that the story of the rich man and Lazarus is a story just like this, where Jesus is using a plot twist. He's taking what was a fairly familiar type of a story and telling it to the people, and they kind of thought they knew the way this story was going to go. They knew how stories like this were told. Only Jesus uses a plot twist, and he twists the story all around, and it subverts their expectations. And by subverting their expectations, he's making a point. Now, we struggle with the story of the rich man and Lazarus because we're not familiar with the other stories like this, the other stories in the same genre, as it were. And so because we're not familiar with the expectations, we don't even recognize it when Jesus is subverting the expectation, when Jesus is using a plot twist. So today I want to talk about what is the story of the rich man and Lazarus, what's the context of that story, and then what's the plot twist to the the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and then how does that apply to us? What should we take away from this? What what can we learn? How was Jesus trying to make the people of his day uncomfortable? 
with the plot twist? And then how can we take that same uncomfortableness, that same discomfort, and grow and learn from there? So if you have your Bible, turn over to the book of Luke, and we're going to be in chapter 16 and verse 13. Of course, first we have to understand the context. Because no passage of scripture has really any good meaning for us unless we really understand the context of it. If we just pull something out of context, we don't really know what point the author or Jesus was trying to make. So Luke chapter 16 and verse 13, Jesus says, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot, one more time, you cannot serve God and money. Not it's hard to serve God and money. Not it's difficult or challenging to serve God and money. Not most people don't serve God and money, but you cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, verse 14, Luke says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Now the Pharisees were very religious people, weren't they? They were the kind of people who were the religious elite. Other people looked up to them and said, That's the kind of person that every good Jewish young boy should grow up to be like the Pharisees, practicing their religion like the Pharisees. And of course, the Pharisees thought that they loved God, right? They thought that they loved God. They thought they were crazy about God. They thought they loved God better than other people did. But they also loved money. And they didn't see any contradiction between the two. They thought, you could do both. Why can't you do both? Why can't I love God and love wealth? Why can't I be devoted to God and devoted to wealth? But Jesus says you can't. It's impossible. If you're a servant, you can't be a servant of multiple masters. You cannot have two masters. Not it's difficult to, but you cannot. It's impossible. You can't be the servant of two masters. Either Either you will love God and hate wealth, or you will love wealth and hate God. Isn't that what Jesus is saying? Either you will be devoted to God and despise wealth, or you will be devoted to wealth and despise God. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a little uncomfortable already. This making you uncomfortable? I'm sure it was making them uncomfortable. In fact, so much so that they ridiculed Jesus. And they said, you don't know what you're talking about. Of course you can love both. Of course you can be devoted to both. Of course you can serve both. And Jesus says, no, you can't. No, you can't. And if we're really honest, maybe there's some of us that would like to take issue with what Jesus is saying here. But Jesus draws a stark contrast and says, it's one or the other. If you love God, you will not love wealth. And if you love wealth, you don't really love God. You have to decide who will you love, who will you be devoted to, who will you serve. And it's in that context that Jesus tells this 
story. So look at a few verses later, verse 19, Luke 16 and verse 19. Jesus tells this story. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Let's kind of stop there for a second. Now, this person, the way Jesus is describing him, there's nobody wealthier than this. This is an extreme level of wealth. He's wearing royal clothes all the time. And he's feasting, not just on feast days, not just on holidays. He's feasting all the time. He's eating sumptuously every single day. There is nobody wealthier than this. Verse 20. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked the sores. All the stories that Jesus tells are extreme situations. Sometimes even ridiculously extreme situations. So that you are discomforted so that his audience is discomforted. And in your discomfort, make a choice. In your discomfort, grow. You have to recognize that this is an extreme situation where there's this man who is ridiculously wealthy and he is indulging himself to the extreme. And at his gate is a man who is poor, but not just poor, he's covered in sores, and his only companions, his only help is from the dogs that come and lick his sores every day. And all he wants is a crumb from the rich man's table. But does he get it? Nope. Not on purpose, not on accident. He doesn't get anything from the rich man. In fact, his name, and sometimes we make a big deal, and I think rightfully so, about the fact that he has a name in this story. Most of the time Jesus tells a story, the characters don't have a name. But this name is important because Lazarus is a shortened form of the word or the name Eliezer, which means God helps. God helps. And it's kind of ironic because the rich man certainly didn't help. The rich man didn't lift a finger to feed the man who was laying at his gate not like he was a hundred miles away. He was right there. He could see him every single day. He knew him. And he did nothing to help him. But God knew him. God knew Lazarus. And God helped him. Verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades... Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now this, so far, the way Jesus is telling this story is exactly the way the audience expected the story to go. This is exactly the way the story was commonly told. These kinds of stories. There were several different, apparently, Jewish versions of the story. There were Greco-Roman versions of this kind of a story. There were even Egyptian versions of this kind of the story. And, and the, the story was usually very similar. There was a very rich person. There was a very poor person. And they both died, usually on the same day. And in the afterlife, in the underworld, their situation was reversed. And that's exactly what we find in this story. And so the audience of Jesus is tracking with him and saying, okay, 
I got it. Yeah, we've heard this story before. We know how these types of stories go. It was a trope or a recurring theme, and everyone was expecting it. Verse 24, and he called out, the rich man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Now again, this was very expected, what Jesus is saying, but notice a few things. One, the, the rich man calls Abraham what? Father Abraham. Why? Because he's Jewish, he does, he's a descendant of Abraham, and he considers himself Abraham's child and Abraham his father. But the irony here is that this rich man didn't act anything like Abraham, did he? He didn't act like a child of Abraham because Abraham, though he was a wealthy man, he practiced hospitality. And he loved the stranger at his gate. He loved the stranger who came to visit him, and he practiced hospitality and shared what he had with those who were in need. This man did not. So it's ironic that he still considers himself, much like the Pharisees to whom Jesus is speaking, considered himself a child of Abraham, Father Abraham. But he didn't act like a child of Abraham. And then some commentators have pointed out that he says, send Lazarus. He doesn't even ask, hey, can, can I go and get some water? He says, send Lazarus. Why is that ironic? Well, a couple of reasons. He's still thinking of Lazarus maybe as a servant. Have him go and fetch me some water. He's still thinking that he's better than Lazarus is. But also, he knows Lazarus's name. He knows the name of Lazarus. That's convicting, isn't it? Because he knew him. He knew him. He knew this, this poor man lying at his gate, covered in sores, the dogs licking his wounds. He knew that he had food that Lazarus didn't have, food that Lazarus him. It wasn't out of ignorance. He knew he just didn't do anything. It wasn't ignorance. He wasn't oblivious to Lazarus' situation. He just didn't care, at least not in a tangible way. He didn't serve him. He didn't love him. He didn't take care of his neighbor, verse 25. But Abraham said, child, remember that you, in your lifetime, received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And again, this was the way that the story commonly went. Again, a rich man, a poor man, both die, and then in the afterlife, their, their situation is reversed and there's nothing you can do to switch it back. You had all of these great things in your life, and Lazarus had nothing, and so now in the afterlife, things are turned around. The tables have been turned. Verse 27. And so the rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, send Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, Listen, because this is the plot twist. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. This is where the audience of Jesus said, huh? What? That's not the way the story is supposed to go. 
that, that's a plot twist. That, that's not the way anybody tells this story. This is not what's supposed to happen. You're supposed to allow someone to go from the afterlife back to the land of the living to warn people. That's the way the story's supposed to go. In fact, we have a very similar story in our culture, a Christmas carol, right? A Christmas carol. And that story is all about this rich Scrooge who, who has all of this money and doesn't care about the people around him and doesn't love his neighbors. And so Jacob Marley, his old partner, comes back and warns him and three ghosts come back and warn him. What if you saw a version of a Christmas carol where they were like, nah, it's okay. If he doesn't get it, he's never going to get it. What? That's not the way the story's supposed to go. Somebody has to go and warn him. In every single one of these stories, that's the way the story went. Someone came back and warned them. Here's what scholar N.T. Wright says. Stories like this were so well known that we can see how Jesus has changed the pattern that people would expect. That may be the next slide. There we go. In the usual story, when someone asks permission to send a message back to the people who are still alive on earth, the permission is granted. Here, it isn't. And the sharp ending of the story points beyond itself to all sorts of questions that Jesus' hearers and Luke's readers were urged to face. Why is Jesus telling the story like this? That's not the way the story's supposed to go. And this is supposed to make the people who hear this story very uncomfortable. Because there's, there's something comforting in the fact that in the original stories, the way that it went was somebody came back to warn the people in the land of the living, you better change your ways. Don't live like this. Don't be stingy. Don't be greedy. Don't be covetous. Share with your neighbor. Love your neighbor. There's something comforting in that. But in the way Jesus is telling this story, he's turning the tables. He's twisting the plot. He's subverting the expectations. And it makes us a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? In fact, it makes the rich man in the story uncomfortable. Look at verse 30. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. Abraham in the story is saying, that's not the way the story's supposed to go. Wait a second, this isn't right. Something is wrong here. How are they supposed to know? How are my brothers supposed to know? How are rich people supposed to know? How are greedy people supposed to know? How are stingy people supposed to know that they can't live like this? Unless somebody warns them, unless somebody comes back from the dead and says, whoa, whoa, you can't, you can't stay on this path. In fact, isn't that probably why stories like this were created in the first place? They created stories like this in the first place to warn people to say, hey, you can't keep living like this. And so I'm going to scare you by saying in the afterlife, things are going to be much different than they are now. And so you better change your ways now. And so I'm going to tell you a scary story about somebody coming back from the dead to scare you into doing the right thing. And so Abraham says, nope, that's not the way this story is going to go. And the rich man says, wait, that's the way it has to go. If if somebody doesn't go back and warn them from the dead, how are they ever going to know? Verse 31, he said to him, this is Abraham speaking to the rich man. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced 
if someone should rise from the dead. See, the irony of this story is that if it was a true story, Jesus would have probably never told it because that's the whole point. The whole point is nobody's coming back from the afterlife to warn you about your ways. You've had plenty of warnings. You've had plenty of information. There's plenty there in the scriptures to convince you to love God and to love your neighbor. And this story makes us rather uncomfortable because Jesus basically is saying, if they haven't gotten it yet, they never will. If they don't understand it yet, they never will. So no amount of scary stories about somebody coming back from the afterlife to warn them is going to convince them. Here's how of the religious leaders. That's who Jesus is talking to. That's the context because they're lovers of money. And Jesus says you can't be a lover of money and a lover of God. You can't be devoted to wealth and be devoted to God. You can't serve wealth and serve God. And so this story is an indictment on them for, number one, loving wealth while ignoring the clear teaching of Scripture to live humbly and care for the poor. You can't live like that. But it's not because a scary story of somebody coming back from the dead is there to teach you that story, that truth, that reality. It's because Moses and the prophets, the law, the scriptures have always taught you that. You know better than this. In Leviticus, the law was if you're wealthy and you have land and you plant crops and then you harvest your crops, all of those crops do not belong to you. You say, wait, it's my land. It was my seed. I planted it. I grew it. Of course it's mine. God says, no, it's not. You leave all of the edges for the poor. And you leave it for the sojourner, the foreigner who is sojourning in your land. You leave it for them. And then when you harvest the grain, there's going to be leftovers that are, that are still laying in the field. Don't go back and pick them up. Leave them for the poor. That's what it looks like to do justice, to share, to give to the people in need. And Jesus is saying, they have all of that information. They don't need anything extra. They don't need an add-on story to convince them to do what is right and what is just. They don't need a story like this to convince them to love their neighbor. If they haven't gotten it yet, they'll never get it. Number two, it's an indictment on them for continuing to demand more and more proof before they would be convinced to change their selfish ways. They continually ask Jesus, show us another sign. Show us another sign. Prove to us that you really are the Messiah and that what you're saying is true because we don't believe it yet. And Jesus eventually says, no more. No more signs. The sign is going to be that the Son of Man dies and is buried and is raised. But they continue to ask for more and more proof. Why? Because of the hardness of their hearts, which leads us to number three. It was an indictment on them ultimately for being so hard-hearted that even a resurrection wouldn't convince them to repent. And that's what we see over and over again in the book of Acts, isn't it? The people who should have known better, the people who should have received the Messiah, rejected him in his lifetime, and even after he's been raised from the dead, they said, we still don't believe it. And even if we did, we're not going to change. And that's what this story says. 
Even if someone came back from the dead, they still wouldn't believe it. They don't want to believe it. They don't want to do what's right. And no add-on stories are going to convince them to love their neighbor. If they're not convinced yet, they'll never be convinced. God told them, Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, through the prophet Micah, God told them, he's told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God over and over and over again. God told his people, you cannot serve me and serve your own wealth. You cannot love me and love your own wealth. You cannot be devoted to me and devoted to your own wealth. And the people kept saying, oh, yes, we can. Oh, yes, we can. And when God shows up in the flesh, they reject him. Why? Because they didn't really know God or love God. They didn't understand that this was their duty. This was their obligation. To do what? To do justice. To do justice for the foreigner. To do justice for the poor. To do justice for the widow. To do justice for the orphan. To do justice. To give. To share what they had with others. To be a conduit of God's blessings to the people who were in need. Not to hoard it as if it belonged to them. To do justice. To love kindness and to walk humbly with their God. And Jesus says, if they, if they haven't gotten it yet, they're never going to get it. So we can conclude by saying, it shouldn't take the threat of torment to convince you to love your neighbors. Isn't that his whole point? It shouldn't take the threat of torment to convince you to love your neighbors. So the rich man is shocked Shocked that Abraham says, nope, they're not getting any more warnings. Nobody's going to come back from the dead to threaten them with torment, to try to convince them to love their neighbors, because if they haven't gotten it yet, they'll never get it. Whew. Uncomfortable yet? I am. I am. Because Jesus is saying to the religious leaders who think that they can have it both ways, they think they can love God and love their wealth. They think they can serve God and serve their wealth. They think they can be devoted to God and their wealth. Jesus is saying, you can't, and you're fooling yourself. And the law and the prophets have said it over and over and over again, and you're not getting any more warnings. You should have it by now. You should be convinced by now. In fact, the love of God should convince you to love your neighbors that way. If you look at your life and you say, I've been loved by God, I've been blessed by God, I'm nothing, and he's done everything for me, that should be enough to convince you to love your neighbor the way God has loved you. So let's get real, church. Are you convinced yet? Has Jesus convinced you that God loves you? Has Jesus convinced you that he's the king, that he's the Messiah, that you should give your loyalty and devotion to him? If so, does it look like it? Are there people in your world, at your doorstep, 
who need you to love them. And you're not ignorant of their situation. And you're not unable to help them. You can, and you know them. Maybe we've just made too many excuses and thought we could have it both to make us uncomfortable so that in our discomfort, we start to reflect on our life and say, am I really trusting in him? Am I really obeying him? Am I really following him? Because he's given us plenty of information to convince us that he's worthy to be trusted. He's worthy to be followed. And he loves you. And it will be worth it to follow him. So let's not wait until we get more information, until someone threatens us into obedience. Let's follow Jesus now in practical ways, like loving our neighbor as ourselves. And maybe you're ready to change your life. Maybe you're ready to put Jesus on in baptism. Maybe you just need prayers or encouragement, but we're here for you, to love you and help you in any way that we can. Our shepherds would love to meet with you after service, so you can come forward now. As together we stand, sing this song.